My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. A few minutes ago, we sang one of the great songs in all of church history. Great is thy faithfulness. It's an amazing song with a tremendous message of hope, and it comes directly from the scriptures. The chorus in particular, great is thy faithfulness, your mercies are new each morning, comes directly from the scriptures. You may be familiar with this. It comes from actually a book called Lamentations, chapter 3. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin each morning. Wonderful, amazing verses that communicate deep truth about God. So a question for you. You may be familiar with these verses, but are you familiar with the 21 verses that lead up to this in chapter 3 of Lamentations? Anybody? Not, not that many, and it doesn't surprise me. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with them, or maybe those of you who are, you know, you, you don't want to read them because, quite frankly, they aren't pleasant at all. They, they speak things to God that are hard to say. They describe, right way, they describe God in a way that we'd rather not engage. So I want to start off this morning with a really important truth. Our refusal to wrestle with the unpleasantness of lamentations truncates our gospel, our good news. Our refusal to wrestle with the unpleasantness of lamentations truncates our gospel. There's a well-known 19th century philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche. You may be familiar with him. He is a fierce critic of Christianity. He once wrote this. He says, if you Christians want me to believe in your God, you must sing me better songs. I don't know about you, but I vividly remember there's a season in my life where I was struggling with belief. And I was in a deep, experiencing a deep uh, season of confusion and despair. It was punctuated with intense panic attacks, and it was fueled by a profound discontent. To that point in my life, singing worship songs on a Sunday morning as part of a church gathering brought me great encouragement and joy. But now, my life didn't match up. 
to the songs we were singing, and I felt an uncomfortable disconnect with the musical worship, and it happened several weeks in a row. Finally, almost, a, almost in a form of a protest, I sat down right in the middle of the singing that morning, and I started writing out what my discontent. I started writing out the discordant experience I was having in my heart, and I finished what I was writing with these words. Either something's wrong with these songs, or something's wrong with me. Because, my friends, life is full of hardships. Life is full of brokenness. The question is, do we have a faith in God strong enough to enter into the broken places? Whether that's the broken places in our own hearts or the broken places in other people's hearts. And when we do choose to enter, the question is, what is our goal when we choose to enter? Again, the brokenness of our own heart, the brokenness of the hearts of others. Often our, goal, often our goal is to rescue or to fix or solve. Maybe it's to soothe or encourage. And re- rescuing, soothing, solving, encouraging, those are certainly not bad motives in and of themselves. But when you enter into the broken place in a human heart, that's not what is most needed in that moment. We see this in the difficult story of Job in the Bible. You may be familiar with that story where Job experiences tremendous loss, horrific loss. And he's sitting in a pile of ashes mourning and he has these friends that come around him. And his friends comfort him for a little while. But then they begin to try to solve the problem by saying, well, it must be because you sinned here. It must be because you sinned here. It must be because you sinned here. Because we all know that our problems are because of our sins, right? Not according to Job. And in fact, Job refused to believe that. In fact, he kept bringing bringing his suffering to God in the form of a protest. Chapter after chapter after chapter of a protest. Interestingly, at the end of the book, Job is the one who is praised by God. And his friends are the ones who are called on the carpet. We need the book of Job. We need the book of Lamentations to remind us that suffering, though unpleasant, offers us something of God we simply cannot access when life is going well. We cannot access it. So today, we're going to spend some time in Lamentations. And maybe you're already there and you're reading, because if you're reading through the Bible in a year, that's one of the good things and the not-so-good things about reading through the Bible in a year is you're confronted with these places that we often don't go and often skip over in the Bible, and maybe because we just don't even know what to do with them. So what I hope to do today is help you know what to do with lamentations. First, we need to address a couple preliminaries. The first preliminary is the historical context of the book. We always need to put the Scripture in its context first. So around the year 586 B.C., the city of Jerusalem was besieged and then utterly destroyed by an invading nation, the Babylonians. We've been reading about that as we read through the Bible. And its people were brutally murdered or taken into slavery. This siege was the single most devastating event in the history of the nation of Israel. Now, the book of Lamentations was written by a man named Jeremiah who is referred to as the weeping prophet. He's referred to as the weeping prophet because first he was weeping over the people of Jerusalem because he was warning them, bad things are going to happen, bad things are going to happen, and they didn't listen. And so he was weeping. And that's the subject of the book of Jeremiah. Then after the destruction, he sits there and he's weeping over the destruction of Jerusalem. 
And that is the subject of the book of Lamentations. Let's take a moment to imagine that. Put yourself in Jeremiah's shoes. He, he gave warning after warning after warning. He wept. He cried. He begged. He interceded for the people of Jerusalem. And they would not listen. He knew something bad was going to happen. And they would not listen. And it wasn't like they, they ignored him. They just didn't ignore him. They despised him. They avoided him. And not just for days or weeks. We're talking years. Years. And then it all became tragically true. Now, Jeremiah had every right to play the I told you so card. He did, but he didn't do that. Instead, sitting devastated in the ashes, he wrote poems of love and heartbreak about Jerusalem. The weeping prophet became the weeping poet, which brings us to the second preliminary, namely poetry. And we need to talk about poetry because Lamentations is 100% poetry. And and poetry speaks to the human heart in a way that no other language, form of language can. It helps us, it invokes feeling, it invites us to feel what's going on in a way that other forms of language don't. Here's how poet Paul Engel put it in a New York Times article. He said, poetry is ordinary language raised to the nth power. Poetry, and I love this, is boned with ideas, nerved and blooded with emotions, all held together by the delicate tough skin of words, as only a poet could say, right? But let that sink in for a moment, and then consider, the Bible is full of poetry, especially the Old Testament. Authors Dan Allender and Tremper Longman describe it this way in their important book, Cry of the Soul. Poetry reaches to the realm beyond the world of sight and sound to reveal what our senses long to see and hear. It is the language not so much of the sublime, but of the truly real, a reality that cannot be grasped through scientific or theoretical precision. Theological proposition or truth statements are necessary for understanding truth, but truth is ultimately relational, and relationship is the domain of poetry. Poetry is God's invitation to glimpse the unseen, his very character. Again, we need to understand poetry because Lamentations is 100% poetry. Another thing we need to know, because we have another challenge on top of that, is it's not just poetry, it's Hebrew poetry. So non-Jewish audiences can easily miss some of the complexity and some of the beauty and the significance so a couple of things that, that are going on in Lamentations that won't be, you, know, well, you won't be aware of at first glance. First of all, it's written with a meter or rhythm, okay, that's poetry language, but it's called a kanah. Okay, it's a Hebrew word, kanah. And it specifically was designed to communicate a lament. Kanah involved taking a complaint or a protest about something they didn't like or understand You know, something that gnawed at them, disturbed them, violated their sense of what should be. Anybody ever feel that? It invited them to put it in this form of a lament and then worship with it. Bring it to God. That was a kanah. Another thing that's easy to miss when reading through Lamentations is the fact that the first four chapters, there's five chapters in the book, the first four chapters are actually acrostics. So every verse begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The first four chapters are like that. Chapter three is they actually do it three times. 
It's important because it's as if Jeremiah was compelled to use every single letter possible to try to communicate his pain. Think about that. Have you ever tried to communicate your pain to somebody and words just can't capture it? Or you just aren't enough words in the dictionary to get it out and explain what's going on in your heart? That's what's going on in Lamentations. Jeremiah exhausted the alphabet repeatedly, trying to convey the sense of total, total devastation he witnessed and experienced. And then in the last chapter, chapter 5, he abruptly abandons the acrostic structure. It's as if Jeremiah finally admitted, I'm not going to be able to organize or solve this. It is beyond me. And then he surrenders to grief. And that is what grief always invites us to do. Surrender. Now, having said all that, can we just stop and admit it, that, that grieving and lamenting is not something we do well in our culture? As Americans, we prefer to solve problems, not grieve them. We prefer to think, not feel. We, 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 we prefer control, not relinquishment. We prefer mastery, not surrendering. We scramble around seeking comfort at all costs instead of experiencing the pain. And my friends, we are worse off for it. We are worse off. The Bible offers a different way, the way of a lament. God created a, a, this lament as a way to process emotions with him. And that's the key phrase there, with him. Hard times will come. Suffering will come. Lament gives us a way to process it with him, to give it a voice, to vent our difficult emotions like fear, anger, disgust, confusion, despair. But to do this, we must be honest about the thoughts we're having, about the emotions we're feeling. Let's be honest with them. These troubling thoughts and emotions that we find that come, that come in suffering provoke us to ask questions of why. Why, why me? Why, why us? Why now? And then we learn that really the only one who can answer those why questions is God. And then you have to wrestle with the fact that God often does not answer. And so then we're left to wrestle with God's character, to wrestle with God's promises. Here's how Allender and Longman put it. He says, all of our emotions find their final object of focus in him. All of our emotions. He says, they say this because the root of all joy is the wonder of redemption. We like that part. But at the core of all difficult emotion is the question, God, are you good? Are you good? Are you really good? Because the evidence sure doesn't seem to say so. And the lament is found all through the Bible. Lamentation is, is unique in that it's 100% lament. And I believe it's in there to help us, to give us a guidebook in how to lament. Again, the question is, will we embrace it? Will we let it teach us? in these difficult places that we encounter. So that's the preliminaries. So now we're going to enter into Lamentations 3. And just fair warning, this passage I'm about to read is rarely read in churches, if ever, because, again, it is highly unpleasant. It describes God's with, God with images that accuse rather than comfort, you know, like we usually like to read. So Lamentations chapter 3 
beginning in verse 1. I am the one who has seen the afflictions that come from the rod of the Lord's anger. He has led me into darkness, shutting out all light. He has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He has made my skin and flesh grow old. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and surrounded me with anguish and distress. He has buried me in a dark place like those long dead. He has walled me in and I cannot escape. He has bound me in heavy chains. And though I cry and shout, he has shut out my prayers. He has blocked my way with a high stone wall. He has made my road crooked. He has hidden like a bear or a lion waiting to attack me. He has dragged me off the path and torn me to pieces, leaving me helpless and devastated. He has drawn his bow and made me the target for his arrows. He shot his arrows deep into my heart. My own people laugh at me. All day long they sing their mocking songs. He has filled me with bitterness and given me a bitter cup of sorrow to drink. He has made me chew on gravel. He has rolled me in the dust. Peace has been stripped away and I have forgotten what prosperity is. I cry out, my splendor is gone. Everything I had hoped for from the Lord is lost. The thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter beyond words. I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. Let's all take a collective deep breath. Those are tough words to hear. Tough words to read. And they are difficult for any number of reasons. I want to highlight one particular reason that those words are difficult. In that they borrow a metaphor, a Bible metaphor that we see all through the scriptures. It is the metaphor of a shepherd and a sheep. All through the Bible, God is described as a shepherd. And we are described as a sheep. And if you've been around church in the Bible for any length of time, you're familiar with this imagery of a shepherd. You have favorite places. For many of us, that place is Psalm 23, right? I have it memorized. Many of you have it memorized. It's often recited at times of great need and sorrow, like funerals. In Psalm 23, we learn that God is the good shepherd who lovingly and carefully leads his sheep to good pasture and quiet waters. He guides them gently with his rod and staff. He helps them through narrow, dark mountain paths and protects them from wild animals. It's an amazing and wonderful psalm. It is also only one side of the coin of God's work. And if we never turn over the coin and look at the other side, there is a depth about the scripture a depth about God, and a depth about life that we completely miss. To to use another metaphor to help you understand what's going on in Lamentations 3, especially in relationship with Psalm 23, I'll say this. Psalm 23 provides a picture of God. Lamentations 3, particularly those first 20 verses, 
is it's photonegative. Now, as soon as I say it's photonegative, there's some young enough in the room to not know what I mean by that. You know, back in the day, before digital pictures, cameras used this thing called film. How quaint. Film cameras used what was called reversed order processing to capture an image quickly using extremely light-sensitive chemicals on the film. And as a result, the lightest areas of the photograph appeared darkest, and the darkest areas appeared lightest. Lamentations 3 is the photonegative of Psalm 23. Jeremiah used shepherd imagery, only the picture is the exact opposite of Psalm 23. So Psalm 23 is the picture, but again, Lamentations provides the photo negative, and that's important to realize. I would go as far as to say Jeremiah knew Psalm 23. He likely had it memorized like many of us. He likely went to it for comfort. And in that moment, it's, he picked every single verb. He went verb by the verb through Psalm 23 and picked its exact opposite. God is described as a shepherd using a rod to harm one who forces his sheep into dark and barren places so that the sheep feel walled in, imprisoned, caught in a maze, unable to find a straight path. God is even likened to a bear and a lion endangering the sheep rather than the shepherd protecting the sheep from those wild animals. To bring this even more clear, I've created a chart to capture the direct contrast between Psalm 23 and Lamentations 3. I'm going to have him put it up here, and rather than read it, I'm just going to sit silent for a bit and invite you to meditate on the contrast. Lamentations 3 is not pleasant, but it's real. It's the genuine cry of one who witnessed horrendous destruction 2,700 years ago. It's also the cry of our hearts when we suffer. It's the cry of our heart. We cry, God, where are you? But God seems absent. Or even worse, he seems like our enemy. You know, as dark and as difficult as honest lament can be, when we offer our lament to God as worship, something startling happens. Rather than our faith growing weaker, our faith grows stronger. And a hope births seemingly out of nowhere. This happened with Jeremiah in Lamentations 3. And for us as readers, when you're reading through it, it's an unexpected relief. It's like, you know, it's like the sun breaking through the clouds on a dark, you know, the low-hanging clouds on those dark February uh, Portland days. I'm sorry to remind you of that. I know it's still August. But you know what I mean. Right there in the middle of Lamentations, we read these amazing words. 
which we just sang. Yet I I still dare to hope when I remember this. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who depend on him, to those who search for him. So it is good to wait quietly for the salvation from the Lord. Here Jeremiah models what biblical lament accomplishes. Biblical lament firmly and honestly declares hope in God in the middle of the anguish. It simultaneously affirms both God's goodness and the pain of present circumstances. And then wrestles with it. Wrestles with it. More specifically, lament is how you ground yourself in hope through the tempest of despair. Because when your world falls apart and whenever you, what, whatever you have built your sense of security upon suddenly crumbles, your bank account, your marriage, your kids, your job, your reputation, your physical body, whatever you have built it upon suddenly crumbles in that awful moment when everything seems to crash in on you you discover you have built your security on the wrong thing lament anchors you in the one thing the one person who provides a sure foundation and true hope true lament does birth hope and praise eventually the key word being eventually <laughs> In God's time, not ours. The invitation to lament is an invitation to surrender, to wait for God. Lamentations has that beautiful, hope-filled moment that we love. But remember, it's right in the middle of total darkness. Jeremiah's circumstances haven't changed, hasn't changed. And if you read the rest of the story, it doesn't change. Jeremiah wrote, I will never forget this awful time. It's not an escape from reality. It's a fully invested in reality. And he writes, yet I still dare hope. The million-dollar word there is yet, yet. Job declared something similar in the middle of his confusion. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. When we're willing to wait and hope for God, we discover that grief and loss is not, simply, is not merely something to endure. Rather than merely turning you into a negative or sad person, lament grows your capacity to feel. And why is that important? <laughs> Let me just be direct. Your ability, your capacity to feel joy is directly linked to your capacity to feel sorrow. Your capacity to worship God in praise is directly linked to your ability to worship God with lament. I again turn to Allender and Longman. He says, it is in the dark struggles with God that we are surprised by his response to our anger and fear. What we receive from him during our difficult battle is not something we expect. We assume he wants order, conformity, obedient children. Instead, we find he wants our passionate involvement and utter awe in the mystery of his glorious 
character. You see, our compulsive urge to control our circumstances ultimately strangles and suffocates us. We gain freedom when we learn to trust God's ability to be in control, even through times of chaos and trauma. But again, let's admit, as Americans, this is not the way we like to, to think about or understand or tell our stories. We like to tell stories, you know, with a highlight reel full of successes, full of comforts, full of milestones, full of happy moments. And those are good. Lamentations shows us that, it, that it's in our darkest times that are most, most crucial for our identity. It's the darkest times that forge our character. It's in the darkest times, in those moments where God's character is most clearly seen and our hearts are more fully transformed. Now, of course, those of us who follow Jesus ought to understand that suffering and lament are embedded into our stories because they're embedded in Jesus' story. In fact, central to Jesus' story. Uh, consider for a moment the Lazarus story. You may be familiar with it. It's captured in the Gospel of John in chapter 11. One of Jesus' closest friends became sick and then died. And what did Jesus do? He stood at the tomb and he made room before God of both his grief and his anger. If you dig into the original language there, it is an angry weeping. And then he did that even though he eventually brought Lazarus back to life. Before that hopeful part of the story, he made room for grief and anger before God. I love how author and pastor N.T. Wright summarizes this for us. He says, this lament is an art we have to relearn. It won't do for us Christians to say, oh, that's all right. God's going to do whatever he's going to do. The first call is to lament. Not to say, I've got a solution. Or even to say, God's got a solution and I know what it is. <laughs> Rather, to lament. To be prepared to stay with Jesus at the tomb of his friend. And only then go with him to see what happens. And then, of course, we have the central story around which all the Jesus story revolves. And indeed, around which all the Bible revolves. It's a crucifixion. It's an intense period of time where Jesus suffered deeply. And in the middle of that, right before he died, he gave voice to a lament. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My friends, when we follow Jesus... The cross comes before the resurrection. And in a similar way, lament comes before praise. So in summary, I just want to invite you into biblical lament. Now, this isn't something you have to go seek out. You know, I don't want to just be a bummer, and life isn't a bummer all the time. But hard times do come, and in fact, some of you here today are in the middle of them. I want to invite you to biblical lament. Capture it. Bring it to God as a form of worship wholeheartedly with the full emotions that go with those dark seasons. And then I also want to invite you to go there with others. Because if you're not going through it, somebody around you is. And how are you going to enter into that? I want to invite you to enter in with biblical lament. And to summarize what I shared this morning, in lament, we find the freedom to honestly process the hurt, evil, and confusion in the world. In lament, we gain access to God whose very presence is the cure for both the pain of the world and the pain in our own hearts. In lament, we grow capacity 
for restful peace, true joy, and rock-solid hope. You know, the first person I ever heard teach about lament was Dr. Dan Ellender, whom I quoted several times uh, in this message. I heard him speak at a small gathering of ministry leaders about 30 years ago. It was the first time I'd ever heard anybody preach out of Lamentations. And that message rocked my world. For the first time, somebody spoke into my pain with hope. And that message, gave the, the, he invited me to, to not see the pain as an end, but the pain as a path to redemption. And that message gave me the hope and meaning I would need over the next several years as I went and had some seasons of hardship and suffering. That message also eventually birthed a calling on my heart. It's a calling you're benefiting from today. And it's a calling to step into the broken places, into the dark places, and bring presence, compassion, and hope. It's the calling that led me to become a pastor. I've been a pastor for 17 years. And in that time, I've had a variety of different roles in the play, but that calling has been central. Enter into the dark stories of others with presence, redemption, and hope. About five years ago, some of you know the story where this actually brought me to a fork in the road uh, because I was, leading, I was a pastor at another church and, and because of that story, my, my job ended as a pastor and yet the calling had not changed and our sense of place had not changed. I'm called to be a pastor in the, in the Hillsborough area and I didn't know what to do. And so that fork in the road led me to pursue a master's in counseling. I started coursework at Western Seminary. In the meantime, I had good friends with Pastor James here, and, and he was going through a transition here, as you're all aware of, and he invited me into the transition. Hey, would you come work for us part-time and help with the finances? And I said, yeah, I can do that. And I'm grateful to have served on, for four years on the pastoral team here and in an increasingly expanded role that also include, has included teaching here on Sunday mornings, and it, is, it has been a great delight. But I, I got my degree in counseling in 2020, and I've actually been almost a full-time as a counselor and almost full-time as a pastor. And that's been a really challenging thing to balance. In fact, you can't. Um, and so over the course of the last several weeks, uh, I've, I've come to the conclusion that I can no longer do both. And I've also come to the conclusion that I need to fully take my calling into this role of being a counselor. Uh, which means I just want to let you know that this will be my last Sunday serving on the pastoral staff team here at Sunrise. And I also want you to know that it has been my great delight to serve as a pastor here at Sunrise. It has been a great delight to teach here on Sunday mornings. There is no greater joy that I've experienced than hearing stories, your stories, of how my teaching has made a difference, for God has used my teaching to make a difference in your lives. So I just want to say thank you for receiving me so well, for loving me well, even as I ask you to release me to more fully embrace this calling. Well, Shane... There's no other way to say it than we love you. Here's a gift I'm going to give you from the staff, but I have to take it back because we have another service, and then you can open it. But it's a card <laughs> that expresses our love for you. And, um, yeah, we're, we're kind of old. We've known each other well over a decade or whatever in ministry, and I can't thank you enough for how you've, in the midst of all those transitions, you came on staff here and loved us and cared and provided strength as my transition began and uh, stability with staff and then preaching. That's what people see, but there's a lot that they don't see. But our deal was sitting at Starbucks was, okay, you come on one day and help me with finances, which you weren't too excited about doing. You're good at it, but 
you, that was like a draining thing. And I'll let you do biblical counseling for one day for all the sunrise people that are messed up. And um, unfortunately, that one day grew to like three or four because of who we are as a church. But that was awesome because that enabled you to continue on that journey and graduate and everything. And, and I was just here with some folks on Friday doing some recording in the studio and wandering back and Shane was there uh, in, in the office or the counseling office. And you get to do that now. I believe it's Wednesday and Friday mm-hmm. uh, as well as in other places. But we just want to honor you and thank you. Pastor Paul uh, isn't here this weekend, but he wants to convey uh, just how much he and I have appreciated Shane, especially in the last couple of years in this transition. And so we as a congregation, we're not just... We're not sending Shane out, Shane and Amy, they're here, but we're just saying this season is over. But a couple things, one, you're not retiring, you're not old enough yet. So if you go, how's retirement? That's not, people have asked me, how's retirement? I'm only 57. Okay, I'm still working. And two, you're still a pastor. You'll always be a pastor. And I want to thank you for that ministry. So uh, would you uh, stand up and join us in prayer? Here's what we're going to ask you to do. Um, Just hold your hands out. Uh, in prayer as if you're putting your hands on Shane and uh, blessing him as I pray and we'll continue in our worship through the Lord's table. Father, thank you for Shane. You know, you've brought him into our life and into our church, into my life years ago and uh, you're just a great God who maneuvers conversations for your glory and even Dan Allender 30 years ago speaking a message that began to weave a thread into Shane's heart that led him to this place where he's transitioning into full-time biblical counseling. Lord, we need that. We really need that as a, as a church, as a congregation, as a community of faith in the world. I pray, Father, that you would continue to weave that thread in his heart, that many people would find freedom, forgiveness, wholeness uh, because of what your spirit is doing through the teaching and through the experience and the counseling that Shane offers. Uh, God, as a congregation, we know that it's all about Jesus, that when we come up and receive the elements of the bread and the cup representing the body and blood of our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ, all of us stand here as instruments in your hands. All of us are people that are just on a journey of discovering that wholeness in you and lamenting the pain and the sorrow that uh, brokenness brings but not running from it, not hiding from it, embracing it because we serve a suffering Savior, a God of lament, a God whose heart breaks for our brokenness. And so as we receive the Lord's table, we are reminded that Jesus brings ultimate healing. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.